Today, we're talking to Christina Finseth, growth marketing lead and inner seller about how she gets 20% plus conversion rates into meetings from her cold emails. You know, there's a lot of talk these days on vanity metrics, right? If you're in marketing, if you're in sales, which you probably are if you're listening to this, you hear a lot about vanity metrics and some people focus on open rates, some people don't give a shit about open rates, which like, I don't know why you wouldn't care at all about it. It is a leading indicator. And some people talk about reply rates and then positive versus negative. And then you get people that only care about conversion rate into meetings. I think all of those are valid, but the one thing that we are driving when we do cold outreach is number of touches that it takes to create a meeting, right? A qualified meeting. So what is the percentage of the people that you reach out to? Do you end up converting into a meeting? And I am on LinkedIn pretty frequently. Uh, It might be how you found me. I don't necessarily consume as much like on the news feeds. I post a lot of content, but Christina, who we're going to be talking to today and you're going to be listening to the interview, she put up a post about how she was getting these crazy, you know, 20% plus conversion rates into meetings. And I looked at the case study. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, she really knows her stuff when it comes to cold outreach. So I wanted to interview her. And one of the things that she's going to break down that I'm really excited about is how she made this transition from marketing into sales, which Honestly, I don't really see, you know, very often like people making that transition because they're curious about sales and like wanting to learn more about it. She's also going to dig into how she thinks about making a campaign scalable. So she has 20% plus conversion rates, but she, it's not like she meticulously, you know, takes several hours per email to write it. There's actually a, a template that she creates and she has a way to personalize at scale. And that part's pretty cool. And then lastly, what we're really going to talk about is, you know, once someone responds, how do you, you know, get them to actually take a meeting? So this one's all about cold email. Before we dig into that, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, my name's Jason Bay. I'm the host of Blissful Prospecting. And I love helping sales teams, sales reps that, you know, really live for landing those big meetings with prospects, but hate it when people don't respond to their cold emails or not feeling confident when they go to make cold calls. And that's my goal with this podcast is to help you land meetings with your ideal client, more more of those meetings. So before we get into the interview, one quick thing to check out. Uh, we have, what, September 22nd is the day that I'm recording this on a Tuesday. We have another three weeks worth of events coming up on our Think Outside the Script virtual tour. So if you want to check out some live webinars, get your questions answered around cold outreach and cold email, cold calls, LinkedIn, et cetera, make sure to check it out. It's at tour.blissfulprospecting.com. We have some heavy hitters coming up, uh, folks you might recognize like Morgan Ingram, uh, Nimit Bot over at Memory Blue, who's been on the show before. So make sure to check that out, tour.blissfulprospecting. It's live. It's free. Go check it out. Let's get to the interview. So we originally connected because I saw something that you posted on LinkedIn about getting like 20% conversion rate on your cold emails (laughs) into meetings, which is like, wow, you know, a lot of people don't even get, you know, double digit response rates, let alone uh, that high of a conversion rate into meetings. But I thought this would be a good kind of a good place to start because I looked at your LinkedIn profile, which I naturally do second. I noticed you had a lot of different kinds of experience. You've been on both the marketing and the sales side throughout your career. 
and you ended up at Interstellar. So how did you end up at Interstellar and how did you get into like being the person that talks about cold emails a lot? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, it didn't happen overnight. Um, listen, I think it takes a lot of mistakes and a lot of casting wide nets and a lot mm-hmm. of experimentation to get to a point where you feel like, ah, hope, you know, and hopefully everybody gets to this point. You've got a method that works. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, people think of cold emailing sometimes either as an art or as a science. And I think of it as both, right? Um, There's a creative aspect to cold emailing, but there's also a science to having kind of a set method and process that you follow. So I love kind of tweaking into those things. But um, I think, you know, for me, the way I kind of landed at Interstellar is is somewhat of an interesting story. Um, My last startup, unfortunately, had some funding issues right before Christmas. Um, It was actually oddly a direct competitor to where I'm at now, Interstellar. Um, Now, that's nothing to be worried about uh, because they're really no longer around. But um, what's interesting is that I didn't start out in sales at my former company. I actually was brought on to head up marketing and be a part of the go-to-market team there, Mm -hmm. which was me, a head of sales, and a head of customer success. Um, what I found about four to four to five months into that role was that there was a huge need to just drive more revenue. And so I started doing demos because I wanted to feel what it was like. I wanted to see how I could help impact it better from the marketing side. And hence, a year later, I've been in full cycle sales. So um, I finished six months there before funding became an issue. And then I was like, oh, I still really want to flush this out. I still want to see what kind of chops I have in full cycle sales. And so I pitched myself to my CEO, Steve at Interstellar and said, Hey, here's the experience I bring to the table. I'd love to join your team and, and continue honing in on that. And they, they gave me a a chance here. So. No, that's awesome. The, the interesting part is the curiosity to me. Because usually you don't hear as much about marketers. And I've been on sort of both sides of the fence as we were talking about as well. You usually don't hear about marketers being more curious about what it's like to sell. They're usually like those salespeople. You know, there's the cliches are all true, <laughs> here, right? You know, like they don't know. Yeah. We give them these really good leads. Why can't they just close them? So you don't usually hear about curiosity the other way. But w- what were some of the things like as you started doing more sales, what were some of the things that you took from marketing that you found were really applicable when you were doing full cycle sales and prospecting and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So obviously a lot of the top of funnel stuff is, yep. is where I felt the strongest, especially going in and, and honestly, even exiting full cycle sales, I still feel like that is where my sweet spot is, is that, that email strategy, that the mm-hmm. copy, um, you know, the multi-channel approach to getting in front of someone and, and really hunting someone and getting them on the hook has always been exciting to me. Um, but I think honestly, you know, my recruiting experience before I even went into marketing, it just all came back to me. I was like, I actually really like talking to people and I help, I love helping people navigate, um, workflows, which extend deeper beyond the product. The product's just a component of it. And how can we work around um, to make this fit your use case? Or maybe it doesn't. And here's what you should do. So I think there's a lot of different um, layers of experience that kind of helped me kind of make that transition. But 
I'd say all of the top of funnel stuff that I was doing in marketing, running a webinar program, you know, all of the content stuff, being vocal on LinkedIn, um, just helped me really kickstart, uh, you know, I guess growing a pipeline and starting to build something. Um, so that was probably the easiest piece to bring to the table. The mid to close side is not as strong for me, but, um, you know, I still could close. So that, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. It's so interesting. This is what I love about prospect. And we sort of mentioned this before we hit record is that you take this blend of marketing and sales skills and, and sort of mash them together. And you get to kind of see, you get to kind of be the bridge almost between marketing and sales in that from a marketing standpoint, obviously it's the top of funnel stuff, but there's like all those skill sets that you think of as more marketing skill sets, like copywriting. All of a sudden now in the last you know, five, six, seven years, copywriting is a huge skill you know, to have as a, as a salesperson. And content creation too. That's one thing you do really well is you're pumping out LinkedIn posts and a lot of them get more engagement than mine. I'm super jealous. No. <laughs> But, uh, and then you got the sales sales aspect of it. That's really interesting too. And let's go and flip it around. Actually, when you did full cycle sales, was there anything that you picked up that was like, Oh, like when I was in marketing, I didn't really understand that that was what we were looking for. That's what the salespeople were thinking. Was there anything like that that stuck out to you? Yeah, I think one piece that was really interesting, and I think I will continue to take this with me now that I've kind of transitioned back into this, you know, bridge between marketing and sales, is what happens after you get someone to respond to you? Mm-hmm. You know, I never had to worry about that before. It was like, all right, got a response, got someone to fill out a lead form, got someone to register for a webinar, got some good engagement here, and then I funneled it to someone. What I have found is that when people respond back to you, there is somewhat of a blend between the direct approach that probably a salesperson would take and the creative side of marketing. Like, for example, if someone responds back and says, hey, so what exactly does Interstellar do? You know, Um, for me, what I naturally wanted to say in the beginning was like, here's a list of all the features that we have and how we can impact the entire process for you. Very, you know, I would say probably marketing collateral-esque, right? Um, But what I found is like, it's better to say, hey, you know, here's the gap that we we close for you. And wouldn't you love to like book 80 meetings next month really easily? Like getting a little bit more direct and creative. um, Some of those pieces were, were things that I didn't. I didn't get insight into before. So I think what it's helped me do is, you know, now that I'm kind of owning business development under my umbrella is how to continue to maybe convert people after they may respond initially hesitant or initially not interested or initially questioning what it is that you do and getting them to convert in very short forms of text versus feeling like you need to do what some salespeople do in demos and do like a feature dump. Yeah. Is kind of where I think uh, I'm going to carry that with me forever, probably. Mm-hmm. So this is really interesting because uh, what I find in the work we do is the people that do full cycle sales. So if it's an AE, let's say, for example, or just, you know, outside of software, if it's just someone that has to fill their own pipeline and do that kind of stuff, yeah. they tend to start the prospecting conversation a little too far along in the buyer's journey. And then, yeah. you know, the people that don't have full cycle of sales experience 
they tend to not really think about that buyer's journey at all. And it's like, how can I just get them to, to do a meeting? And they don't think about what really actually compels someone. Like, why would someone want to even buy a product like Interseller? What would it do for them? What pain point might it be solving? And this gap thing, I think, is really interesting. And of course, Keenan talks about gap selling. He didn't invent the concept of, he calls it the gap. But obviously, that concept is not an original concept necessarily. I don't mean any, that sounded really bad. I don't mean any offense to because I really love his system in his book. Yeah. Um, but so if I'm a BDR, let's say, or an SDR that hasn't done full cycle sales, what are some of the ways that I can figure out? And how did you go about figuring? And how are you, you know, working with your BDRs now in like un- really understanding like what that gap is that you solve and really talking about to, you know, some of the problems that might be keeping people from getting what they want? How do you go about like finding that stuff and, and recommend a, a BDR and SDR or someone find out that kind of thing? Yeah. So first and foremost, I think, you know, being that I'm, I'm kind of the, the first person into this role. Um, and as I grow out a team, some of the things that I'm thinking about is, you know, having that playbook put together. So yeah. like what kind of attracted you with that LinkedIn post with that process document that I put together putting more of that together. But what really people don't see before you get to that point is all the layers of experiments that you run. So this is something that I definitely brought from the marketing side, you know, whether, you know, in marketing side, we would test different calls, calls to actions or different, uh, you know, subject lines or even different ad graphics, right? I mean, there's so many different things you could test. And I think the same thing applies to sales. And so I think there's this element of, all right, I've got this bright idea. I'm going to run it on, let's just say 50 or 100 people as a sample size and really understand if it moves the needle. Or A, do I need to reiterate something, right? Do I need to rewrite something? Do I need to move some steps around in that process? Um, Or this is not fruitful. Let's abandon it and move on to the next strategy, right? So I'm a big fan of experimenting frequently. But then when you find something that works, double the hell down on it. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, I think it's more about building repeatable processes that you can then um, hand off to a newer, you know, team of, of BDRs or SDRs or whatever we want to call them for the sake of this conversation that they can start with, but then empowering them as more of a player coach to say, hey, you have freedom to try some things outside of this. A, as long as you're documenting it, right? Because if it's working, we want to figure out how to replicate that and roll it across the team. Um, So to broadly answer your question, experiment frequently, fail fast, (laughs) and double down on things that work or move on. You know, it's okay to do that. Um, I don't think that what what works today is maybe going to work three months from now. You guys continuously evolve. No, I in the uh, word that you mentioned to me that really sticks out is repeatability. And that's something yeah. um, I was just talking to Beck Holland, who's going to be on the virtual tour and her, that's her big thing, right? It's repeatability, scalability. Yeah. Like if it can't be repeated, I, I don't want to teach it. I don't want to want anything yeah. to do with it. <laughs> so let's talk yeah. about AB testing though, because one of the things that like, when I look at, at your document, what I love is there's actual data in here. Most of the time yeah. people share stuff. There isn't really a lot of data into like what they're doing or how it worked or anything like that. When do you think about AB testing? Let's let's start from scratch here. So for someone that, you know, and a lot of the reps that we work with, 
they have to do this stuff on their own. They don't have anything really provided to them outside yeah. of like really, really bad email templates. How do you think about setting up an A-B test? What are the components? You know, how do you approach testing? What's the sample size got to be? Like, what are the ins and outs of A-B testing for you? Yeah, so it depends on what you're A-B testing. I mean, if you're A-B testing email copy, like for example, I've A-B tested or I've done we don't even have to call it apples to apples as in like AB testing. We could talk about just testing a different channel too, like Mm -hmm. LinkedIn voice messages. Are those fruitful for the ICP that we're targeting? You know, Um, it, something may be more fruitful for us than it would be for someone else who's targeting different people in the industry. Right. Um, So I think when it comes to email copy though, subject line and call to action are the easiest things to kind of, change out, right? Um, I personally, and I obviously, I know you're very passionate about this too, and you write a lot about it, Jason. Um, I personally like sample sizes of at least 50, Yeah. really on target people, right? Um, so not just like throwing this against the wall and seeing who it sticks to, but really being thoughtful about who you're prospecting into it and making sure that it's a genuine sample that you're going to get good feedback from one way or the other. Um, and like I said, Subject lines and call to actions are the easiest. I also like, uh, like one thing that I'll test sometimes is, hey, instead of having like a meeting prompt, right? Asking more of an open-ended question so that you're trying to engage on that first email, right? Um, Trying to get the conversation going. So in fact, what you'll find, even though in that process document I shared with you, you only see the first touch point that I have, I do not say pretty much anything about the company at all in my entire cadence or sequence ever. Mm-hmm. And it works. People okay. will inherently go in and look at your company if you have the compelling message, period. I have data that shows that. They will go and do their own research and say, oh, I got a really thoughtful message from Jason. I'm going to go and click on the link in his signature and see what his company does. And then they more often than not will respond to you through that lens. Well, and especially if you're talking about a problem that's really common in their industry, you know, that's going to get people really, or their role. Yeah. It's going to get people really curious. So with AB testing, I know this sounds like basic stuff maybe to you because you've done this a lot, but like just to get back to science uh, experiments and and stuff like that, like you need a control. So I think like a lot of when people with the AB test, they don't actually have an A. They just start doing something new and they don't, they never compare it or they, or they change up too many things so that there's not an actual control variable. So when you're approaching AB testing, if you're listening, just make sure you got to have a control, keep something consistent and only test one thing at a time or test multiple things, but do it in different sequences. You know, don't test a ton of different things in the same sequence. So subject line, how would you, like when you're looking at subject line, uh, I'm assuming you're looking at the open rate to determine whether or not you need to A-B test it. Is, th- is that what you're looking at? And if so, like what's an acceptable open rate for you? Like when, how long are you going to yeah. keep A-B testing uh, the subject lines? Yeah. So subject lines are so interesting to me because I would also argue that if you get to a certain level of reply rate, who cares about your open rate, right? I yep. think opens can be taken somewhat with a grain of salt 
um, unless everything else isn't hitting the mark, then it's mm -hmm. like, okay, if my open rate sucks and I'm still not getting any replies, then I've got to, I've got to retweak here. So that's, that's one thing. Um, if you are getting the replies, I still want the open rate technically to be above 50%. Yeah. That's standard. my standard. That's my standard. And honestly, I'd argue, you know, most of mine fall somewhere between 75% and higher. Um, that's great. So I have a little bit of a higher bar set for myself and what we do. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, listen, I have customers right now who have, let's just say a 40% open rate, but they have a 14% positive reply rate. I tell them, don't, don't worry about that open rate yeah. as much. If you're getting the right engagement and the right uh, type of replies, don't be hard on yourself because preview pain, there's so much that kind of can trigger an open rating that I just, I don't like people to get too consumed with it. Yeah. And I glad that you brought that up because I mean, open rate reply rate. Yeah. Those are important, but really at the end of the day, it's the positive reply rate. Like how many of those are actually turning into a meeting? So yeah. with subject lines, I think we can kind of bounce in and out of this AB testing stuff. That's cool with you. Like of course. With, the, uh, with the subject lines, because this is something that I'm uh, teaching right now in our boot camp, So it's like really top of mind for me. And I'm thinking like, and I'm sure you're going through this too. You're thinking of all the things you'd naturally do well. And you're like, oh, well, how do I teach this to someone? Yep. <laughs> you know, so like when you approach subject lines, my sense looking at this document, because it's very specific, you'll say, Jason, I disagree with Scott's post too. Like these are highly yep. tailored and you're, you're doing them at scale too at the same time. But it's not just some... Um, it's not interseller and then the company name. I don't see that anywhere. You know, it's, it looks like it's a little bit more uh, specific than that. But subject lines, what's your take on these? How do you think about putting together a good subject line? And maybe give us some examples as well. Yeah. So I probably 10 out of 10 times can tell you that the first name is always in the subject line. Yeah. It's, it's so it's easy. Just triggers a, <laughs> and it works. It's so easy. <laughs> Even, listen, and whoever's listening to this, first of all, thank you. But <laughs> second of all, make sure that you put a first name in there. You, the, the good news is you don't have to have some crazy system that changes that out for you with a personalization token. It's really easy to just put, you know, if you're doing this manually even, just to put Jason, you know, let's connect or something really simple. Um, what I have found is the two subject lines that I have continuously come back to um, are Jason about your LinkedIn post, right? Because uh, I, I tend to target very specific content, right? Um, or Jason, let's connect. Jason, let's chat. Something very simple. The longer they it gets, um, the more it's going to get chopped off. Uh, if someone's looking at it on a mobile device, mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, but yeah, first name's got to be in there. And, you know, if you can make a bolder statement, like I disagree with someone's post too, um, that's great. Or I agree with someone's post. If it's something that's really overtly one way or the other that you can mm -hmm. kind of use as food for thought. But yeah, short, sweet, personalized first name. How do you think about prospecting to someone? That, let's say if they're not on LinkedIn really or posting much or they're not doing much activity. Do you just go with the let's connect or let's chat? Or is there anything else you might throw in there for someone that's less active on social? Yeah. So I got this question a lot after sharing that doc with people. They're like, oh, this is really great. If my person was active on LinkedIn, like what do I do if they're not? 
Um, and that's, so I have an order of prioritization in how I do research for this, mm-hmm. this kind of same method or process. One is, are they posting content? Whether they're commenting on something, engaging with something, heck, even if they're liking a post that I could potentially use um, or posting their own content. If that is not existent for that prospect, I go to the company level next, right? What is the company LinkedIn uh, page posting? Uh, If it's not really anything there, then what press releases have come out recently for that company or what's on their blog? Anything that you can pull some sort of inspiration from to then put it into that personalized approach. But for the subject line, I'm still staying fairly consistent. So maybe it's Jason about Interstellar's press release or you know something that's somewhat consistent but otherwise yeah I'll fall back on let's connect or let's chat because it at least gets the open and I have the opportunity to win them over with a copy. Yeah, I love that the and I guess it depends on deal size how much you're really going to spend, you know, yep. customizing every touch, but the subject line if your deal size is big enough, it, like I'd say if it's 20 to 30k plus, you know, annual contract value it might make sense to actually have a custom subject line in there every time with like something you copy and paste some sort of snippet. So I like that, like yep. the press releases, the language I find that even if the person's not posting on LinkedIn, even if they say that they're passionate about something or they're driving something at their company, I mean, like literally yep. copying and pasting that and putting in the subject line works extremely well. And it's not like they remember that they wrote it on their LinkedIn, but it's written in their language, <laughs> you know, and yep. how they talk. So with subject lines, from an A-B testing standpoint, yeah, I'm going to keep testing essentially until I either hit, what is it, 10% positive reply rate? Is that something that you get pretty excited about? Or like, what's the positive reply rate typically that you want and consider successful for a sequence? 10% on the business development side, I think is, and we're talking about positive. We're not talking about 10% unsubscribes or, yeah. you know, 10% like, you know, F off. We're looking at actual, hey, this was really great. However you know, we're moving in a different direction is fine. I personally look at at least 10% plus bookings, yeah. which means I also need somewhere around a 30 to 40% reply rate Yeah. on any given time frame. Um, but if we're talking this about, just pot, crazy, if you're though. talking about, this is like 10%, it, I would just be jumping up and down if all of our clients get hit 10% uh, booked into meetings. That's just, it's crazy. Cause a lot of people celebrate 2% booked into a meetings. That was me. Listen, I used to, and listen, I'm not going to toot my own horn. I think I'm a good copywriter. Um, When I was in marketing, I felt like I could write really good, um, compelling copy that could get people at scale to register for that webinar or Mm -hmm. to download that ebook. Um, And so when I first came into, you know, sales, a lot of the, the campaigns I were running, was running were, you know, to three, let's just say 300 people, really great copy, but not really personalized too much other than like a first name and like a company name and just, you know, kind of one size fits all. And I would get that one to 2% conversion to booked meetings. So, you know, six, seven meetings over a two week span. When I flipped the switch and started doing much more targeted outreach, I found that I could do eight meetings off of 40 outreaches. Yeah. Right. Or 40 touches in like a four day period. 
that's when I was like, okay, I'm doubling down on this. That makes more sense to me, like logically. But the problem is, and Jason, I'm sure you find this all the time, is that people will listen to the advice. They'll look at the best practices, but you can't force someone to actually apply them. And so there's still a small percentage of people who will actually go through that effort and that motion because it Mm -hmm. does take a little bit more time. Well, it's like, you know, I've been talking a lot about pattern interrupts lately. And so I've been studying, well, where does the concept of a pattern interrupt come from? And it's actually like neuro linguistics programming. It's such a tongue twister every time I say NLP. And what they, uh, what it was uh, for was helping people overcome addiction or breaking bad habits. So part of this is identifying that habit and then derailing the habit, like doing something completely differently, installing a new one and then practicing it. So this is a lot like trying to like make working out a habit or eating healthy. It's like, you've been doing one thing forever, right? For as long as you've been prospecting. And now this is like, this is going to completely derail that, you know, and it's like a really, really hard. And that actually might be a good segue into this research because it's very workflow intensive, but to to button up the subject lines, I love the examples there. Uh, We need to have 10% plus positive reply rate. um, And if we have that, it's okay to have lower than a 50% open rate, it sounds like. But really, we want 50% yeah. plus. Uh, we got some good examples. We'll get to the CTA here in a second. But because you brought up research, because I feel like this is the sticking point for a lot of people. It's, oh, wait, now I got to look this stuff up on the person. And it's going to take yep. 10, 15, 20 minutes. What if I spend an hour researching it? You know, like, those are all the things that typically happen. How do you think about workflow? for research? Because I know immediately when you start answering this, you're like, I do this. And then I look for this. And then look for, like, you know, exactly what you're looking for. Like how thought out is the research process? And like, how much are you documenting, especially for your team as you grow up, like the workflow part of it? Like, what does it, what does it look like? How do you think about it? Yeah. So I have a set cadence that I follow. Uh, I know that's not surprising to you. We talked about this before <laughs> we recorded. Um, <laughs> I'm very scientific in that way. So although I'm I'm pretty extroverted, I also am very analytical. So I like to look at numbers and data and data doesn't lie. And that's why I openly share data. Um, so what what's interesting, and, and this can be cumbersome for people when they're first thinking about wrapping their head around more of this targeted approach. I was overwhelmed by it. Um, and you know, even after I saw success from running one sequence with it, I still, it was really hard for me to not want to reach out to hundreds of people. I'm like, if I'm not reaching out to hundreds of people, like, crap, like, am I really going to put all my eggs in this one basket and really hope that things work? But once you really push through those uncomfortable moments and you realize that you're getting, you're demonstrating success, things are happening you'll quickly forget the old way. I can't imagine now going back and and Mm -hmm. sending like relatively good copy to 300 people at one time. Like I just can't imagine doing that. Um, But, you know, to to kind of hit on that, um, I think that the biggest piece is coming up with your infrastructure first. Once you have that initial kind of infrastructure laid out, and what I mean by infrastructure is my, so I have three, well, actually four emails in my cadence, right? I have other touch points that are in between that, like LinkedIn connection, LinkedIn voice messages, video messages, et cetera. But if we're just talking about the emails, I will tell you my second, third, and fourth email are all pretty much the same for everyone. My first email, I have a structured 
what I would call a building block template, not a standalone template. And what it enables me to do is plug in different areas that I am changing out to make that research make sense and to fit it into my outreach. So, you know, my, my, like you, I mean, you can see my message um, and I'll kind of quickly go over kind of what that infrastructure is, but first sentence is personalized, right? Jason, I saw you posted about cold email outreach tips on LinkedIn and thought I'd reach out. That's it, super simple. My second paragraph really goes into, hey, you said X, Y, Z, quote them, right? Quote them on something. Um, and that's where that research part comes in. Or maybe, hey, I saw a press release uh, for your company uh, that popped up a couple of days ago. Congratulations on making Forbes best list, right? Huge kudos. I know what it takes to do that, um, to get on that list. The press release said X, Y, Z. So again, inserting a quote and then go into your call to action. With that said, I'd love to get on uh, you know, a quick call, learn more about you, your company, and your priorities right now. I'd love the opportunity to talk about how Interseller could fit in. That's it. That's all I leave. Everything else, I mean, from, from what you're hearing, 90% of that template pretty much remains the same. There's really two key components that I change out based on that research. Um, so it's going to their profile, right? I follow a lot of hashtags that are super relevant to my ICP. So I'm constantly looking at what content is under the recruiting hashtag, for example, or the hiring hashtag. Um, you can also even search phrases within the search bar within LinkedIn, like recruiting agency, right? And pull up content that is not necessarily hashtag, but kind of encompasses some of those key terms that you might want to hit on. Um, and then from there, I go to the company, right? The company page. So I think those are the two places I usually live. If I need to get super granular, if the company is really scarce or their profile is really scarce, then I start to hit, or their activity is very scarce, shall I say. I start to hit on what's in their profile, too. I saw someone like burritos one time, and I put that in my subject line. I mean, there's just so much yeah. you can do that people just don't realize. Um, as simple as like what you said, copying and pasting something that they say that they're passionate about. Um, I just think there's so much you can do that's just at your disposal there. So how do you think about the the relevance piece, like connecting like what you can help with or the problems that you solve or the gap that you're filling. How do you think about connecting that with the personalization? Uh, Cause I, and I asked this because I, I guess again, where yeah. a lot of people get hung up is like what to find, especially if it's, you know, not on LinkedIn, let's say, or anything about the person, which honestly I find in most cases, there is something usually on someone's LinkedIn profile, even if there's no job descriptions, like just commenting on their yeah. work experience and the trajectory, you know, you can do that. Yeah. But how, it feels like an advanced tactic when I just don't think it is. And I think it's because I have trouble explaining what I'm looking for, but how do you think about the relevance piece in terms of connecting what you find with why you're reaching out and why it would make sense to talk? That's that's the part that I found so interesting through this. I always thought I needed to put something about the problem solution connect mm -hmm. in my email copy. And I will tell you, you don't have to. 
Mm-hmm. I really don't think, and I'm super passionate about that. So um, I've generated so many booked meetings with relevancy because like I said, what happens is, and I, and I am happy to share my screen and show you this data, is I have almost a direct correlation between the amount of replies that I get to the amount of people who click on my website, the company's yeah. website, once they get a, an email from me. So the email could be, completely about something totally irrelevant to what we solve, but it's such a compelling message that they then go to interseller and look at what we do and reply with that context. I will tell you probably nine times out of 10, I get a reply that's very contextual to what we do and how we could help them without me having to spell it out in my email copy. Do you use click tracking? I do. Okay. And you haven't found that that affects open rates or anything like that? No, I didn't turn it on until I had really great open rates and reply rates. Um, yeah. Click tracking, I, I don't usually tell people to turn that on right away if it's not something that you know they already know. Their open rates are above 50%. Their reply rates are above 10% uh, because it can skew some deliverability. Yeah. But no, I track all of my clicks. So. Yeah, because I think on the enterprise level, it could affect deliverability. But usually, if it's not like a super enterprise company, I usually don't see it affecting that. So this is interesting yep. because essentially what you're doing is you're pointing out something to them. You're showing, hey, I did my research. Like it's it's on something yep. that they care about if you can find it, which already I'm because I'm, I'm reading this email and it's like, uh, hey, Jason, you know, happy Wednesday. I hope this email finds you well. I noticed that you recently commented on Ingrid Johnson's LinkedIn post urging job seekers to stay away from external recruiters right now. So already I'm like, oh, interesting. So this person was looking at what I commented on. Hey, your comment link was right on the money and I couldn't agree more. And then it kind of goes into, and I think this uh, paragraph was probably more COVID related, but it's like, hey, as we tread through some uncertainty right now, I'd love to pick your brain for 15 to 30 minutes to learn about Blissful prospecting and your focus areas during the pandemic. I'd love to earn the right to talk through. I love that line, by the way. Sarah Drake uses that too. I'd love to earn the right yep. to talk through how interstellar might fit in. Do you have time for a quick call this week? So it's like, it doesn't really talk a lot about, you know, hey, we solved this problem and companies like yours use this and stuff. And this is under the assumption, obviously, that your company has a great website, which you guys have a great website. It's, it's very clear like what you guys do and who you help and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So this is interesting. I like that. It, it's just like, hey, it's not a hard ask for a meeting really in terms of like yeah. times. It's more of those softer call to actions. It's like, hey, let's just let the person do the research. And then if you turn click tracking off or on, excuse me, let's just look and see what the pattern is of the people that look at the website versus the ones that book the meeting. And then you could kind of start playing around with that kind of stuff too and, and try to find clever ways to send people to certain pages on your websites and you know stuff like that. So this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this was the hardest part for a lot of people to wrap their head around is like, you're not really talking about the problem you solve. You're not talking about where you fit in. But I'd argue that if you are really clear on who your ICP is, right? Very clear. What I have found in the buyer journey, and I've done this on all of the closed one deals that came from this process, is that they will do their research too. If you got them curious and you've said something that really 
makes them feel like you're being super thoughtful, which you are, they are going to click and see what it is you do and understand that before they reply to you. And and that's the thing. I've had someone actually um, not debate me, but kind of challenge me on how many confused replies do you get? I'm like, honestly, none. I've never gotten someone to write back and be like, hey, uh, yeah, cool. We can get on a networking call. But it's very clear oh, that I want to talk like about how call call it all. Yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, you you get my point. Like, yeah. it's hard, I think, for for... And I say us because I've been in the salesperson's shoes now. I can say that um, to collectively wrap our head around how people, how we don't have to talk about the problem we solve in an email. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the interesting part, so like if you just kind of go through the, I always talk about design thinking, you know, and thinking about the person on the receiving end of this outreach, like what are they going to do after they get that email? And naturally, like you said, everyone's going to look at your website, whether it's in your signature and they click on it or they grab it from your email, whatever. Yeah. And like just kind of playing into that. Right. And assuming that if they're interested, they're going to do that. Um, If someone asks, so what does interseller do? That's a good thing. If they respond and ask that, like, that's a good thing, right? If people do that. And this is very much in line I mean, Beck Holland has a similar approach with the kind of relevance and stuff. And she was kind of showing me a behind the scenes of the stuff she's going to talk about here in a couple of days on the tour. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like it wasn't super problem centric or like any, anything like that. And I think that, I think it depends on what you're selling. I think that's where the message comes down to. And I can be incredibly problem centric when I'm prospecting because everyone has problems with prospecting. Almost no one that I reach out to is like, dude, I'm so I'm good on prospecting. Like our reps love cold calling and they get killer response rates to their emails. Right. So I can be very problem centric. I think you actually might be able to a little bit um, just because like I'm looking at the website. I love the floating bear, by the way. Um, but it talks, like, when, yeah, when you scroll down, it says the problem, reaching out to candidates shouldn't require a dozen processes and tools. And it's got a really cool image that basically illustrates uh, the exact problem that a recruiter has. And here's a sol- solution, combines it all into one you know, platform for you. You know, so I guess what I'm taking from this is like, be mindful of what you sell. And if, and if, if you try this problem centric approach and you find that you say it in a cold call or you say it in an email and it just doesn't really vibe, like just ditch that all together and try to send them to a relevant page on the site for their industry or a case study or, or something like that, that really eloquently describes the problem in a way where they don't feel like they're being pitched. And maybe that's part of it too, actually. Now that I think about it is when I'm reading a cold email, I feel like it's a pitch, but if I go on your website, I feel like I'm doing research. <laughs> it's psychology. It's the psychology <laughs> and the buyer journey. It, you're yeah. absolutely right. And first of all, if you, scroll back up to the top of that process doc, you'll see something about Beck Holland because, you know, I didn't reinvent the wheel here. There's a lot of things I took from people like Beck and mm-hmm. reapplied, right? Um, and my head of sales, Steve Brady. I mean, there. this isn't just, uh, I, Christina came up with this concept. I just figured out how to really apply it to what we're doing here. Um, but really anyone could do this. I think, you know, you make some good points there. Everyone who researches ends up clicking the link in my signature to the website. So what if you just switch out that link, like you said, to drive them to a very specific page? 
to help with that conversion? I mean, there's so much you could test there, maybe A-B testing or just even changing that out for different, if you have different ICPs, right? Um, if you may be targeting a CIO and a CTO and a, a CFO, for example, maybe you have these different landing pages that you can put that as your kind of your signature uh, uh, link to the website, knowing that that's part of the buyer's journey. If you have really compelling copy, they're going to click on the link in your signature to see who the heck you are. And they're going to land on a page that's made for them, basically. I mean, that's a really, in fact, I'm going to test that now this month because I haven't done that yet. So thank you for helping me figure out my next experiment. Yeah, this is, yeah, this has really got me thinking because that buyer's journey is so important, right? The education part of unaware, right? There's this extra stage in an outbound buyer's journey of unaware that people aren't in, uh, you know, when they're an inbound lead comes in, right? People have at least done research in your company and, and somewhat kind of know what you've done, uh, what you do with an inbound uh, sort of approach. So yeah, this has got me thinking about this research component where I'm just thinking about the problems that I have in our business. Like one of them right now has to do with me feeling like a content marketing machine. Like we're just pumping out so much content with these webinars and if someone yep. reached out to me and said, hey, you ever feel like you don't have enough time? Or, hey, you know, I talk to a lot of business owners and, and what I'm here is this. You know, people are trying to pump out a lot of content, but they have other stuff in their business and like all this other stuff. I don't know how receptive I would be to the problem if it was like too specific to where I felt like I didn't quite capture it. Right. It didn't quite capture the problem that I'm having. Or it talked about a problem and people don't, I don't like to, I don't want to admit that I have a problem. Yep. So I don't know, this problem centric, it's really got me rethinking that. And I think a lot of stuff, just to kind of bring this full circle and, and with A B testing is to test stuff, right? If your problem centric approach is not working, test it alongside of doing something like this. And maybe that's just another email in your email sequence too that's less about this. You know, so interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So with A-B testing, one last thing that we can hit on real quick. You, you mentioned call to actions. Yeah. Uh, what kind of stuff do you test in call to actions? And like, uh, what are you, why would you test the call to action? I guess to, to start with that first real quick. Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of piggybacking off of what we were just talking about and this leads into it is got to think of the email that you're sending as a ticket to a conversation, not so much. Are they going to agree that we could solve a problem and get on a call? Right. And so I think when I think of call to actions, um, you know, I I've tried quite a few different ones and I think I would argue that certain ones will work on certain people versus others. So I think there's some gray area there and what you can use, but I think it's important to flush those out. Um, Sometimes what I'll do like during COVID, I know it's still during COVID, but during the really beginning parts of COVID, something that I would say is, you know, here are some insights I'm hearing from other recruiting leaders and, and, sh and shoes like yours, right? Um, XYZ statement, XYZ statement, XYZ statement. Are you experiencing or, uh, or is this in line with what you're currently experiencing? Or what are you currently experiencing that I could add to these insights when I'm talking to other people? 
something that leads them to potentially just start engaging with you. Because listen, as sellers, once we get a conversation going, I mean, I'd like to think that most sellers are confident that once they actually get someone to start communicating back and forth with them, that if it is, if the stars are aligned and there is problem solution fit there, you're going to get them to the next step, right? So thinking of this email as a means to just getting the conversation going, that's always kind of the lens that I'm trying to look through. So I'll test, you know, open-ended questions like that versus, um, or like, what are you, how are you guys adapting to this remote work life, right? Just like very open-ended questions versus like, Hey, what does your, do you have some time, uh, this Thursday between one and five to connect? You know, I I think there's something to be very specific about that, but what I've usually turned to is some sort of open-ended question. And then the other test, that's my constant test. My A is what, you know, uh, do you have some time to connect this week? That's it. Depending on when I'm sending it, if I'm sending cadences that start like Thursday, Friday, do you have some time to connect this week or next? That's it. Um, that's always my constant. If you want to test something against it, those open-ended questions sometimes can can get you a little bit more insight into what they're thinking and what their priorities are. Yeah. I love this you know, purpose of like get the prospect to engage with you. Right. And I think that's a lot of, we always, I always say, don't prospect to make a sale, prospect to start a conversation. It's like everything you approach should be like, how can I just get someone to respond to the email and be like, yeah, actually, that is something I'm thinking about right now. How can you help? Yep. What do you guys do? Or, hey, I looked over here. Do you guys help with this? You know, like those are like, those are the responses that you want to get, you know? So, um, hey, this has been really great. We're out of time. That like flew by. Um, I love the A-B testing aspect of this. We dug into some really good stuff with subject lines. I love the research process and like the infrastructure approach. Um, where do you want people to go to connect with you? How can they learn more about what you guys are up to? Yeah. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm an open book. Um, and if you connect with me as a result of this, you know, interview and podcast with Jason, let me know. I'll send you the process doc too. I'm always happy to share what's working for, for me and interseller for cold outreach. That was a fun one. One of my big takeaways from that is getting the person to click on your website and tracking it. I go back and forth on link tracking just because it typically lowers the open rates um, in my experience because it it tends to flag spam filters and you know the the Google the Gmail filters to put things in the updates and promotions folder but it's actually really smart to know what people are clicking on and if nothing else at the beginning of a campaign or at some point even if you just did a test to find patterns like Christina did with oh hey when someone looks at her website if I send them to a very particular page and, and she's also very fortunate interseller has got a great website that really eloquently talks about the problem <laughs> and you might not have that. So maybe you send them to a LinkedIn post that you wrote or an article or a case study or something like that, but good thing to test. And it's something that's definitely on my radar to test. So appreciate you checking out the episode. One more thing before you take off, got a quick favor. If you could leave a short, honest review of what you thought about the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. It helps the show grow so we can continue getting on great guests like Christina. And you can do that on the app that you're listening to on the podcast app. If you're listening on iTunes, it's blissfulprospecting.com slash iTunes, which uh, you can either access right there from the app, like I said, or search for Blissful Prospecting. 
uh, from your iTunes account. And that's it. We'll talk to you later.